We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Klaus Badenhagen, who reports for German language media from here in Taiwan. Hi, Gavin. And we'll also be getting the view from Michael Turton, as the well-known blogger is also in the studio with us this evening. Good to be here, Gavin. Did you like that joke, though, the view from Michael Turton? I like that. I like there that. you go. <coughs> anyway, tonight we'll be discussing a hiccup in government plans to boost wind energy. Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe returning from a city-to-city forum in Shanghai, something called Heat Leave, and Taiwan Sentinel Chief Editor J. Michael Cole will be talking about Taiwan's defence needs. But we'll begin with lawmakers this Wednesday, passing a watered-down version of the contentious forward-looking infrastructure development plan bill. And the government was seeking a budget of 840 billion NT over eight years, but was forced to reach a deal with opposition lawmakers and agreed to cut the budget to 420 billion NT and shorten the implementation period to four years. Now, of course, the infrastructure plan has been the focus of much controversy ever since the government first announced it. The Tsai administration says it will boost economic growth, affect, attract rather investment and create jobs. But its critics, however, argue that the government has been rather vague about actual concrete details regarding the plan's implementation. The government has also faced charges that it's using the bill to boost the DPP's chances in next year's local elections, as about half the total investment will be assigned to DPP-led local governments, and most of that for light rail construction. And of course the plan has lots of investment opportunities and these investment opportunities include rail transportation light rail construction water environment, urban and rural development, digital development and green energy. So a vast amount of projects there Michael so what do you can see as the future for this infrastructure development plan they've half the budget do you see it becoming a big failure or the success the government hopes it will become? Well, I see it as becoming a great success in getting local factions to switch over from the KMT to the DPP, which is probably its major goal. <laughs> and, of course, light rail construction. We're talking about there, of course, because of course, the, most of these areas are going to get light rail. I mean, does Taiwan need light rail construction? Uh, not need, but could use. We have to have something. Taichung is now the second, is going to be the second biggest city in Taiwan in, in a, within a short period. So we've got to have some kind of uh, transportation for it, and this is a good start. It's cheap, I guess, Klaus. Yeah, light rail's cheaper than an underground. Oh, I like public transportation a lot, and I think if you if you are to spend ridiculous amounts of money, you could as well spend it on public transportation. I'm just thinking, wasn't the sole infrastructure plan originally intended to like be the starting point for turning the economy around and, I don't know, Industry 4.0, all that? I mean, what has happened to that? All I see now is haggling about how many billions do we want to spend here and here. So it's all about pouring out huge amounts of money now, isn't it? They, the government did say that they were looking at lots of investment. I believe 10 billion NT was quoted some months ago about how much total investment they could get. It's also for jobs. But my question is, of course, Michael, jobs here? Do you think this will create jobs? Or Well, it's going to create jobs, clearly. I mean, that's its goal. But, but to me, it looks a lot like a Japan-style... Uh, forward into stagnation, sort of over-dependence on infrastructure. That, that's already a dead end. So, and, and in the last minute, they were cramming in the food safety stuff and a couple of other things, which looks very bogus, right? So, 
And they've cut it down to four years uh, with the option to do the same thing again in four years after that. So that was probably wise. I expect that, for me, the key thing as someone who's watching politics is that it's going to be a big boost to DPP chances in the 2018 election. Which, of course, is what's been argued by the KMT. It was one of their big things why they opposed it. Well, exactly. And I think also there's, there's very little truth to that because this is part of the DPP strategy to redistribute resources, which have always gone preferentially to the north. And the second thing is, sorry, KMT, the DPP controls five out of six municipalities and a lot of other places. And you could hardly have an infrastructure bill that didn't favor green areas. I did get a bit – I did laugh rather when they, when they announced that food safety had been put in the infrastructure bill. Yeah, no. I mean, how, how do you see food safety sitting with light rail construction there, Klaus? It's definitely a subject that concerns more people directly, I guess. So, Mike, you were saying that what the DPP is doing is now using tactics that the KMT has been perfecting for a long time. Bingo. But now concentrating on their constituencies in the south rather than maybe more on the north, like it has been before. But it's basically about using state money to buy local allegiance. Basically, uh, and also, in fairness to redistribute resources back to the South from whence they came, right? So for 50 years, we've had a colonial government that's transferred resources out of the South and Center into the North. And the DPP has come to power, committed to reversing that trend. So one of the, for, to a certain extent, the whole Taiwan independence movement is a reaction to this transfer of resources. When the, when the older generation said we want independence, what they really wanted was independence from was that colonial state. And now the DPP is in power, and it's committed to this, this post-colonial uh, uh, project of reversing all these things that KMT set up. A lot of these old um, Jiang Jingguo era major construction projects were also in the south. I mean, the the highways go down to the south. You Kaohsiung Harbor. You had a lot of well factories and steelworks. It, it used to be dirty, dirty construction, dirty right. infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously, you live in Taichung, Michael. So, obviously, you're having a you're having an MRT built there at the moment. Yeah. You had bus lanes, infrastructure, yeah. bus lanes, and an MRT. Of course, the Bus lane system has now been scrapped, and they just have regular buses running down <laughs> Taichung Boulevard <Yes>. now. <laughs> I mean, do you think Taichung really needs an MRT? Well, no, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> what we need is a much better bus system. <laughs> but, I mean, why is that? Well, because the city's growing so fast. I mean, the population's growing really fast. It's not because it was cobbled together out of very disparate regions. That are, you know, they're far apart, like... Like Daja is, what, 25K from downtown Taichung? So there needs to be a way to connect these areas to make a city out of these suburbs that currently exist. Well, but, you can't even say suburbs. But an MRT would be going too far, you feel? I, I, I don't see the population density in the area where the MRT is. Actually, our, our correspondent in Taichung, Donovan Smith, has cast his aspersions about the MRT line. He believes it will cause so much problems with construction that it will overshadow its opening when it eventually opens. Yeah, I can see that easily, yeah. Anyway, let's move on from the infrastructure plan, but not without saying that a spending budget will now be submitted to the legislature for review during a second extra session, another session. Of course, this was voted on in an extra session. What happened to those laws they introduced about workweek laws? <laughs> do, do, do lawmakers not adhere to them? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> anyway, so they'll meet next Wednesday, the lawmakers, to discuss the budget for the infrastructure plan. And that's when the Premier is expected to deliver a report about where the money is going to be spent. Because, of course, another argument about the infrastructure plan is the government actually haven't come out and said anything concrete about it, have they, Klaus? That's uh, the best pun I've heard today from you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, let's move on, but not too far from the infrastructure development plan. And President Tsai Ing-wen this week reiterated her administration's commitment to the development of wind energy, saying that it will both address power supply concerns and create jobs. And Tsai made the remarks during a DPP Central Standing Committee meeting on Wednesday of this week, at which Deputy Economics Minister Shen Rong-chin and Zhanghua County Magistrate Wei Ming-gu presented reports on the four-year wind power development plan. Now, of course, Wei has been very busy promoting Zhanghua County as the ideal spot for wind farms ever since he took office. And the county is one of four areas the central government is eyeing for serious wind power potential, the others being Taichung, Yunlin and Penghu. But there's a but, and that but centres on nine proposed wind farms in Zhanghua, which apparently have run foul of the Environmental Protection Administration because the EPA is now calling for the three developers of these wind farms to provide more information on the project's environmental impact. And the EPA has said that developers failed to provide adequate analysis of the impact of the projects and how much impact they would have on migrating birds and other wildlife. And the developers now have until September the 30th to submit the more detailed environmental impact assessments. So, Klaus, that's a bit of an embarrassment, really, isn't it, for the government? It's jumping up and down on one hand, saying, we need wind power. The projects look like they're all going ahead in Zhanghua, which looks to be the centre of Taiwan's wind power production. But, of course, there's a hiccup and the paperwork hasn't been completed properly. Well, I'm very much for conservation playing a bigger role in Taiwanese decision-making. But I also see that if the government wants to um, get rid of nuclear power and strengthen renewable energy, then offshore wind is really um, one of the very important ways to go there. Germany is doing the same. You know, we are the other country that decided to have no more nuclear and um, offshore wind farms uh, are a huge thing right now. And Taiwan is in a pretty um, lucky situation here because many countries' coastlines, maybe they don't have enough wind, but mostly the oceans are too deep, so you can't build those. But the Taiwan Strait is not too deep, so you can anchor these offshore windmills in the ground there. So it's a really good opportunity to do something, to be serious about renewable energy. Now, of course, environmental regulations need to be followed. I just think that there are so many other things being built all around us where apparently they don't play such a huge part. So are they looking especially closely now here, Mike? <laughs> well, that was my, my first response. Why is the EPA blocking wind farms? Oh, why am I not shocked by that? <laughs> right? It's just so common. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, but those pink dolphins, I mean, they, they were a subject a few years ago when they wanted to build the new nafta cracker plant in that region. And then environmentalists back then said, um, used the pink dolphins, which are um, endemic to Taiwan, as one argument to to block that and to turn public opinion around. So it's not surprise. It's no surprise that they are popping up again now. But I, I'm not sure how much constructing windmills would really impede on their habitat and all that. Apparently, the companies didn't tick the boxes properly. There have been reports that the companies simply tick the boxes, submit the reports, and it's OK, OK, OK. But we don't know yet. But what's interesting is the Bureau of Energy, three years ago nearly, announced 36 sites for offshore wind farms in Taiwan. 21 of them were in Zhanghua County. So what is it with Zhanghua County, Michael? You live near there. Tell us about the merits of Zhanghua County and wind farms. Well, I do a lot of biking in Zhanghua, and there's always wind. <laughs> And, and, of course, it's an ideal uh, 
because the coast is so the coast of Zhanghua is, des- is a desolation. All the way down to Yunlin, they suffer from uh, subsidence problems, poor agriculture, poor soils, you know, declining uh, sea fertility, you name it. They have all sorts of problems there. And wind is a good a good answer to what are we going to do with these resources here. And it really helps the DPP. Zhanghua is a battleground area between the KMT and the DPP, constantly flipping sides. So I think this is going to be very good for the uh, DPP and for Taiwan. And speaking as someone who lives upwind of those coal plants, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very good for my lungs. <laughs> I mean, do you think this could <clears throat> turn into a bit of a bone of contention, though? The DPP currently is in charge of Zhanghua. Should the DPP be voted out, do you think the wind farms could be yanked? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a strong possibility, especially because Thai power is so, well... Is, seems appears to be very obstinately opposed to renewable energy. What about that, Claire? I mean, do you, how do you do you see Thai power becoming an obstacle to Taiwan's eventual turning to wind power? I think Thai power has always been an obstacle to Taiwan's turning toward renewable energy. So, I wouldn't be surprised about that. As long as they can make the big bucks running their coal power plants, they will only half-heartedly embrace all these renewable energy projects. Well, I believe before we go on this t- section, you have a joke for us, Michael, a wind farm joke. Oh, no. So two wind machines are talking, and the first one says to the second one, what's your favorite kind of music? And the second one says, I'm a big metal fan. <laughs> I, I, yeah, okay. <clears throat> yes, that, that's, the, that's the joke for this evening's show. That's anyway, what. we'll keep blowing along here with no jokes, and we'll move on to Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe returning from a city-to-city forum in Shanghai on Monday of this week to both applause and criticism. Now, Kerr described the event as being very successful and said that the goal of the forum was to ease cross-strait tensions and, in his words, help things take a turn for the better. I did like that comment. Help things take a turn for the better. He also held talks with the head of China's Taiwan Affairs Office before leaving Shanghai and he told reporters that he described cross-strait exchanges as good things during that meeting but he went on to say that he believes Zhang Zhuojun needs to develop a better understanding of Taiwan's political situation. Now of course prior to Kerr's leaving he took a lot of flack from both the green and blue sides of the political situation here but when he came back the pan-blue newspapers were well, they were putting pictures of him on the front page with headlines basically celebrating his great cross-strait meeting. So do you think this cross-strait meeting, Michael, was as uh, very successful as he described it? It probably was. Uh, I mean, how much success could it have? So within that tiny little space, it was probably really successful. But you notice that he went over there, and at the same time this week, China announced it was slashing students to Taiwan universities. So maybe over here there's a lot of nice pretty words but over there actual concrete things are happening that are not good for this relationship of course the meeting did take some flack with the government coming out and basically saying while we agree that city to city exchanges enhance bilateral understanding such meetings should be carried out with no political preconditions so klaus do you think there was any political preconditions to the taipei shanghai forum you mean from the chinese side or from the from either side we'll go either way here when the dpp um embraced Coenter as type A mayoral candidate, they knew that he was going to be kind of a loose gun, so they shouldn't be too surprised that he says things now that not uh, that are not one hundred percent the DPP political line. There, um, the Chinese side. I don't know. I, I would speculate that they signaled him before that he needs to say certain things, or at least something that goes in a certain direction, in order to accept him over there. But uh, we'll probably never know. 
So, but but Mike, do you remember when Coranger ran for mayor? Did he say similar things about cross-strait relations, or was that some new wording that came no, out he's, just now? No, he's actually been pretty good at, at 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 creating a discourse that enables him to say the people on both sides of the strait are one big family. But he uses the word for family that implies actually they're like relatives. And not people who live in the same house, you know, not a nuclear family or something. Well, that was what was quite surprising about when he came back from Shanghai. The pan-blue newspapers sort of lauded him with pictures of him and great headlines saying that Kerwin Jur says we're both all together and one. And, of course, those newspapers usually focus on his gaffes. Right. <laughs> so a bit, of, a bit of switch there, anyway. Anyway, before we leave this first half of the show, we should have time and we should probably talk about something that happened on Thursday, and that was the European Parliament. And they met and discussed the case of human rights activist Li Mingzhe, who, of course, has been detained in China for more than three months on charges of subversion of state power. Well, the European Parliament said they support Li, and they're also calling for Beijing to release him. So, Klaus, there you go. The European Parliament. You're a good European, aren't you? I mean, do you think anything will come of the European <laughs> Parliament's call to release Li Mingzhe? Wait, you're European as well, at least for now. So, um, Am I lot voted out? Yeah, I'm, allowed to, I'm allowed not to be at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> But still, at the moment, you still have uh, representatives in the European Parliament, as do, as do we, as does Germany. So the European Parliament, it's, it's good that they talked about it. It maybe give this case some coverage, but I think nothing will come out of this. I mean, the European Parliament cannot even um, propose laws within the European Union. They can only vote about what the European Commission is handling to them. So it's not like it, it's not like the most powerful body in Europe right now. If they give Liemingjö some, some exposure international media-wise, policy decision makers, maybe someone gets away of this, it's okay, but I would not make too much of this. Right. And Michael, do you see do you see Li Mingzhe coming home soon or not quite as soon as people want? Not quite as soon as people want. I mean, why, why do you, what, what do you think China's going to do with him when he does come to trial and they do have to put him in a dock and they do have to explain the charges? I, I have no idea how they're going to handle this. It just seems that I think they themselves do not know. And that's why, and that's why the delay. Right. Because my question, Klaus, was actually how many how many European parliamentarians bothered to turn up for this meeting? Because of course we had Juncker this week complaining that none of yeah. them went to work. Well, I guess about thirty-five. That would be about a third. Yeah, less than a third, I think. Less than a third of them. Never mind, I don't know. But and I didn't vote for Brexit, but my lot did, so I don't need to know. Anyway, that was the end of the first half of this week's Taiwan This Week, and we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And of course, last Friday, the United States announced a $1.4 billion arms sale to Taiwan. And that announcement came just as we were preparing to record the show. So while we did give it a mention, we didn't linger on the issue. So we're now going to begin this part of the show with Taiwan Sentinel Chief Editor J. Michael Cole chatting with me about the arms package, as well as other issues related to weapons procurement and development. Good evening, Michael. 
Good evening, Gavin. OK, well, the Ministry of National Defence here in Taiwan said that the arms sale would improve self-defence capabilities, enhance air and naval defences and early warning capabilities and maintain peace across the Taiwan Strait. That, well, that, that's obviously a pretty standard response to the arms package. Certainly is. Uh, no game changer here, but uh, the key the key element, besides the fact that some, there are some interesting weapon systems uh, mentioned in the package, it's, it's the first arms sales under the Trump administration, and it reassures people in Taiwan, and it uh, indicates that, as a number of us expected, uh, even under President Trump, we're going to see continuity in, in U.S. engagement of, uh, of Taiwan. Right, and of course, as you said, it's the first under the Trump administration. And of course, Beijing once again cried foul. But of course, this time its complaints coincided with the Liaoning aircraft carrier group passing through waters close to Taiwan. And of course, there's other people who have said it was announced on the day that China was celebrating the handover of Hong Kong from Britain. Do you see any connection here or do you think it was just purely coincidence? Well, the timing is certainly interesting. Um... That being said, I mean all the, all these things from you know, releasing of arms packages to uh, transits by aircraft carrier groups is, is not something that that you wake up one morning and decide to do. So there's there's several weeks, there's several months of, of planning ahead of time. Uh, but that being said, all of this happens in the context of you know in recent weeks uh, we're seeing the, the the Trump administration once again uh, swimming back swinging back in in the direction of being a little. Harder on China, if you will. Uh, President Trump a couple of weeks ago, you know, expressing his discontent with Beijing's inability to to properly handle, uh, as he says, uh, the North Korea problem. So again, whether all of this was time to coincide with with celebrations in Hong Kong, I, I strongly doubt it. But the context is is quite revealing, uh, and to me indicates that you know both sides are are, are moving and counter moving, if you will, and sending signals. Uh, and both those developments are certainly uh, signals. Right, of course, Beijing once again called on America to cease selling arms to Taiwan. I mean, do you think this this latest sort of complaint is yet Beijing once again doing its six-monthly complaint, then we won't hear from Beijing again for six months till the next thing happens? Yeah, I mean, Beijing has been doing that for several years. Every arms sale is supportedly uh, U.S. meddling in China's internal affairs, and it crosses all, all sorts of red lines and all that. Beijing has to go through emotions. Uh, again, now this is the first time that Beijing expresses discontent uh, over arms sales to Taiwan under uh, the, the, the Trump administration. So they have, they have to do it, and they have to see uh, you know, what pushback will, will accomplish in terms of uh, convincing the, the Trump administration officials that they might not want to sell weapons to Taiwan in future. But again, I mean, what, what gives me hope for continuity is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people in, in DOD and, and states and, and people around uh, President Trump who've been through this for years, if not if not decades. So again, it's, it's the dance that the two countries have to, uh, have to do every time it happens. But in the end, the U.S. is a sovereign state, and it, it makes its own decision. Right. Of course, a U.S. State Department official did say that the latest package primarily represented upgrades to existing defence capabilities aimed at converting current legacy systems from analogue to digital. I mean, that's obviously a standard comment, again, looking at the contents of the arms package. But what caught your eye as in, as in regards to the systems that the U.S. okayed? Well, indeed, there's 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 upgrades to radar systems and, and and whatnot, and those are you know welcome, but certainly not game changers. I mean, to me, the the standout is is definitely the AGM 
154 uh, air-to-ground missile. Uh, and the, the version that has been released to Taiwan is basically uh, meant to attack uh, hardened ground targets. So that's that's a you know that's a, a JSO air, air-to-ground missile is uh, is in many ways quite the offensive weapon. Uh, coming from a government that over the years has already always said that it will only release um, defensive weapons uh, for Taiwan. Uh, that's 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 a little bit of a of of a, of, of a different uh, spin on arms sales, uh, if you will. Right. And U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee um, chairman, I guess, Ed Royce, has called the arms deal long overdue. And of course, there have been calls in recent years for the U.S. to make more timely arms package sales deals with Taiwan and also to lump certain equipment together rather than dragging it out over about a year or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Royce has definitely been uh, been a, a strong voice for, for doing this. Uh, again, it's, it's too early to say if, if that is representative of future arms sales to Taiwan. Uh, and and you, look, you look at the composition of what's been released, it's, it's no big change from, from previous arms, uh, arms releases to Taiwan. But uh, again, uh, there, were, there was chatter that, that you know, given rapprochement between the Trump administration and, and the Chinese, that, that the arms uh, sale to Taiwan, long promise, was being delayed for political reasons. I mean... I, I, I always had issues with that because, I mean, Trump had not been 100 days in office. It takes a while before you can constitute a proper arms sales or arms package for, for any country, not just not just for Taiwan. So the notion that politics were dragging things down is, is not completely impossible. But to me, it was just the typical institutional uh, friction, if you will. And, and now we're seeing the release. And again, uh, besides the defensive value uh the signal of continuity of, of engagement with Taiwan is, 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 is quite welcome. Right, and you recently penned an article for Taiwan Sentinel titled The Next U.S. Arms Package for Taiwan, What Taipei Should Ask For. So what do you think Taipei should be asking for? Well, Taipei is going to be asking for a number of things, uh, some of which will probably never be released by the United States. But all of that is, you know, part of the dialogue that, that Taiwanese defense officials based in Washington, D.C., in consultation with with Minister of National Defense here in Taiwan, uh, they're, you know, they continue to to ask for things like the F-35, which is one item that is probably too expensive uh, and that the United States would be quite reluctant to release to to a country like Taiwan. Uh, A number of defense experts and and officials uh, who are close to that dialogue have for quite a while now been saying uh, that Taiwan needs to focus again on, on dispersibility. So that's the reason why in, in, in the article that you just mentioned, uh, I was referring to uh, to road mobile radar systems, if you will, because no matter what the United States sells to Taiwan, Taiwan remains a fixed target for, for Chinese missiles. Uh, so now more and more uh, Taiwanese and uh, and their American counterparts need to focus on on dispersibility, uh, and Taiwan has one of the most advanced uh, early warning radar systems on the face of the planet. Uh, but the problem is, it's a fixed target, so it would not be very difficult for the Chinese to uh, to knock it out. 
Right, and of course the Thai administration is planning to seek increased reliance on domestically produced weapons platforms and systems. And of course the most ambitious projects there are the diesel-electric submarines and training jets. I mean, just how far forward are the Taiwan military with these projects? And do you think they're viable in the long term? Well, the submarine... uh program is uh is contingent on on foreign assistance from from a number of countries and and what remains to be seen at this point is whether uh the united states has given the green light uh for that project to to proceed um no doubt at some point uh, taiwan does not need u.s assistance to build the actual ship uh there's a number of other countries that have the, the, the capabilities to do that uh, and it looks like they have, they are willing to provide that kind of assistance quietly behind the scenes as well. Uh, in terms of uh, radar and fire control systems, uh, that's where uh, American defense companies would very likely play a role. So all of this, uh, the success of that of that uh, particular project, is contingent on uh, you know U.S. green lighting. Uh, the other focus in, in, in Taiwan right now has been very much, and this is something that started a number of years ago, is, is what we call counterforce. Uh, and that involves uh, land attack cruise missiles and anti-ship missiles. And that's an area where Taiwan already has uh, domestic know-how and capabilities. So we've seen uh, an uptick in, in development of and mass producing of and fielding of uh, these types of weapons. And this is something that actually started under President Ma. Uh, so we're going to see more of this as well. This is this is low cost. This is all part of uh, Taiwan's promise to China that if uh, or should it uh, engage in military adventurism in the Taiwan Strait, there would be a high price to pay. And that's something that only, in my opinion, only counterforce can uh, uh, can promise. Right. What about the next generation fighter jets? Do you think Taiwan's got any hope of actually developing something better than the IDF? Uh, better than the IDF, very likely. Uh, that platform is, is, what, 30, 40 years old. Uh, that being said, uh, again, that would be uh, highly contingent on, on U.S. support, like the IDF was also made possible because uh, the United States sent sent a bunch of, uh, of engineers and experts to assist with development. Uh, the big problem that Taiwan faces right now is, is the fact that uh, Developing a 4.5 or fifth generation aircraft would be a multi-year and multi-billion dollar endeavor, uh, occurring at a time when Taiwan is already engaged in, in developing uh, usually expensive submarines, uh, and also, as we know, uh, trying to move towards uh, all volunteer military, which is also a very costly endeavor. So my my sense right now is that uh, embarking on on a new aircraft uh, development project would probably uh, strain military budgets uh, beyond beyond what what's available right now, unless they are willing to to pass an extra uh, an extra budget that that legislature. But that is also uh, very much contingent on the state of the economy uh, and securing uh, support from from the public. Right. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure, Gavin. And finally, we're going to move far away from the serious matter of defence and look at a rather lighter story from here in Taiwan this week and something called heat leave, when employees are allowed to skip work 
because it's simply too hot. Now, this stems from a poll by Yes123JobBank, which found that 69.5% of respondents said they did not want to go to work when the weather is scorching hot and the government should introduce rules to allow for heat leave. Now, the reasons given included hot weather leading to fatigue and increasing impatience and anger, as well as causing attention deficits and dizziness or headaches. So there you go, Klaus. Would you go? Do you, would you, would you go to work if it was too hot, or would you complain about impatience, anger, attention deficits, and dizziness or headaches? I don't get it. What happened to air condition with this in this proposal? Apparently, when you step outside between the air conditioned bus or oh the air conditioned yeah. MRT, <laughs> oh, that's terrible. You, you yeah. suffer from fatigue and in, increasing impatience <laughs> and anger. And once you get to the office, you are so angry you forget to turn on the air conditioner, and then it gets even worse. That's right. Oh. <laughs> That's Michael, tough. would you like a would you like a day off for heat to leave? I'd like a day off of rain, heat, cold, wind. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you see nothing coming from this, then. You, no. you don't see someone in the houses of that tell us what to do. Going, ah, oh, yes, heat to leave. Let's let's debate that bill. We'll put the infrastructure project on the back burner. Gay marriage, forget about it. We'll do that next year. We'll discuss heat leave. We already have PMS leave, and that's so unfair to us men. <laughs> I have no comment about that because people will probably hate you for saying that. Klaus, do you think this is an issue or not an issue? Of course, we did recently have calls for air pollution days off work. Well, I remember when I was a kid in Germany, then heat leave was actually a thing. So we were hoping for, I don't know, we needed maybe 35 degrees Celsius. And then because our schools don't have air condition, then it would be deemed intolerable for the kids to go to school so they could stay at home or go to the swimming pool or whatever. But I think in all those years, maybe it happened once, one day in my life, and I'm not even sure if they still have it. But um, if we could give Taiwanese kids at least something to look forward to, that might be That's worth right. consideration. This was actually the Yes123 Job Bank did this poll, which found that 69.5% of respondents said they didn't want to go to work. So this, this, is, this is workers, and I can't see companies giving their employees heat leave. Can you? Never. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> they have trouble enough giving national, ho national holiday, holiday leave, leave here, right. of course. Yes. And what was interesting about this poll, though, was 82% of employees who work outdoors that were questioned, they didn't actually back heat leave. They simply turned around and said there should be government subsidies to compensate them for working in extreme conditions. So they don't want the, the people that work outside don't want days off. They simply want more money. The government could hand out government-sponsored ice packs at the MIT entrances <laughs> with a little DPP stamp on <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> That possibly wouldn't work. Anyway, that's where we'll leave the show this week here on Taiwan This Week. And today I've been joined in the studio by Michael Turton. Thanks, Gavin. And a great joke, by the way. The wind farm joke was just brilliant. I'll, I'll bring one every time. Do. Excellent. And Klaus Badenhagen. Thank you. Right. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.